Well, good morning once again. Uh, my name is Levi Pancake. I serve as one of the uh, elders, pastors on staff, and uh, great to be worshiping with you this morning. Uh, we're going to be looking at Psalm chapter 2 this morning. Psalm 2, uh, that is page 448 if you're using the Pew Bible. And uh, while you're turning there, uh, just a couple things. Once again, if you're a guest with us this morning, we want to direct your attention to this bulletin. On the bottom, there's a tear-off portion that says uh, connection card on it. Please fill this out and uh, take it to the connection center in the back. There's also a few announcements, things that are happening. Uh, hopefully, you heard Nate mention it, but immediately following the service in the uh, Missio Kids building, we have what's called a meet and greet, great opportunity to meet some of the leadership staff, uh, hear more about about who we are, um, what uh, the church's aim is, and all of that. Um, if you didn't sign up for it, that's okay. We got extra food. If you're a college student or a grad student or upstate student, uh, free food. And so don't turn up that opportunity. Uh, we'll probably be in there maybe 45 minutes, and uh, we want to invite you to come to that. Again, that's immediately following the service uh, in that Missio Kids building. There'll be people there to direct you on your way. Uh, also, if you're a covenant member. Um, we want to remind you that next Sunday evening at 6.30, we have a covenant members meeting. That's something we do quarterly. Uh, we urge you in the strongest way possible to uh, make that a priority. It's a time where uh, we're going to pray together. We're going to give some updates, things that are happening, and uh, some other pertinent information. Uh, that's our version of a family meeting. And so, uh, child care is provided. If you need child care, just uh, give us a heads up. And then in two weeks, uh, actually 13 days, it's a Saturday, we have what's called uh, exploring membership. So you heard me just mention about the covenant members meeting. Um, that's exclusive. That's for covenant members only. And yet we would love to invite you to become uh, a covenant member as well. Um, what that is for us in the simplest term, um, that allows us to know uh, who this family is. For us as elders and pastors, it clarifies for us who we're responsible for in terms of ongoing shepherding responsibility, responsible unto the Lord. Uh, it's a way where we can practice the one another's and and uh, it's a way where we ensure that people are being discipled and shepherded, etc. So if you're not a covenant member, if you're newish to the church, whatever, um, we want to invite you to that exploring membership class. If you're not available that Saturday morning, uh, Saturday, September 28th, it's all good. Uh, just reach out to Michelle or info at missiochurch.org, and uh, one of the elders would be happy to sit down with you and go through some of that information. So that's all that's happening. It's start of the fall. Uh, school's back in session. People are getting into their rhythms, all that stuff. And that's why we had a heavy dose of announcements this morning. All right, so we're uh, in week two of this uh, series in the Psalms. Uh, hopefully, you received either last week or this week uh, this handout. It says Psalms, Songs of the Great King. And so, we're going to um, begin this journey through uh, book one of the book of Psalms. And so, uh, we're in week two, Psalm two, and uh, follow along as uh, we read this together. This is the Word of the Lord. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them 
in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time together to worship you, to fellowship with one another, and hear your word. And we pray now that you would incline our hearts, that you would give us understanding, that you would open our eyes, that you would satisfy us with your word and with your promises. We entrust this time to you, Lord. We love you, and it's in Christ's name that we pray together. Amen. My five-year-old son, Judah, loves Legos, just loves them. Me, I have a love-hate relationship with Legos. I love that they make my son happy. I hate that they end up in pieces, all jumbled together, never stay put, and disorganized. Now, that's more of my type A organized personality, but nonetheless, Judah loves them, no hate, all love. So, a few months ago, we got him a Lego. It was like a car or house or something like that. And it was for an age range that was a little higher than him. And so, I had every intention, get it for him. He's excited. We're going to open the box, pull out the instructions, my favorite part of the Legos, and then we just flip through it and we'd start building it. Sit down, do that with him, and then something came up. I don't know what it was, something around the house. So, I went to another room, told him I'd be back. And when I finally came back, dude was almost done with the Legos. Like, like he had built it. He was putting on the finishing touches. He was going through that book orderly and just knew where everything went. And I, I was impressed, to be honest. It was uh, rather surprising. I did not think that this guy could build that Lego set, particularly in that time frame. But he just put it all together. And I realized that um, I had, in that moment, a limited view of my son, what he could do, what he could accomplish. And I know it's not going to be the first time as a parent. It certainly wasn't the first time. It's not going to be the last time that um, I short sell the kid. You know, I don't think he can do something. I don't think he's capable of something. You know, that's just one of our burdens as parents. But it's easy to have a limited view of our children. It's easy to have a limited view of our spouses as well. You know, we're just convinced. I mean, we just have it in our mind that our spouse is going to respond this way only for them to surprise us and they respond that way. Uh, it's easy to limit our view of other family members, coworkers, neighbors. I mean, you name it, anyone we're in a relationship with, we can at times have a limited view of them. And it's very easy for us to also have a limited view of Christ. 
Now, you can see this uh, very clearly uh, around Christmas time, where we uh, sing songs and, and reflect on uh, Jesus born as a baby in a manger, come to save the sins of the world. And, and He was a baby in a manger. He did come to save us from our sins, yes, but not just that. Uh, we often uh, think of Jesus, um, you know, meekly performing miracles and healing people, or um, we think of Him amazing people with His teaching, or we think of Jesus um, only on the cross. All those things are true, and yet Jesus, at least as the Scriptures present Jesus, I mean, Jesus is, is so much more than that. Uh, and Psalm 2 is going to, uh, if you haven't already picked up on the theme uh, through our singing and as I read the passage, it's going to present Jesus as a righteous king a righteous king who has the nations as his heritage, whose, whose possession is the ends of the earth, who's quick to wrath. His wrath is quickly kindled. Uh, it pictures Jesus as um, this, this ruler who um, is going to break his enemies with a rod of iron. He's going to dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And so, what Psalm 2 does is it, it portrays Jesus. It, it, it emphasizes Jesus' kingship. Now, uh, we looked at Psalm 1 last week, Psalm 2 this week. Psalm 1 and 2 um, basically are uh, an introduction, a preamble to the entire book of Psalms. And Psalm 1, we saw in last week, it presented this contrast between the, the wicked and the righteous. And we saw that Jesus uh, was the only one to completely uh, fulfill um, the expectations of the righteous man, the, the only one who completely, like, never walked in the counsel of the wicked, never stood in the way of sinners, never sat in the seat of scoffers. So, Psalm 1 presents this righteous man, and Psalm 2 is going to show that this righteous man is king. As we start the book of Psalms, it's, it's looking for a righteous man who's a king, the king who is righteous, the righteous king. And what we're going to see in Psalm 2 is that it is wise, wise to submit to this righteous king. Now, Psalm 2, if we're going to classify it in terms of a type, uh, it would be classified as a kingship psalm or a royal psalm. Acts chapter 4 attributes this psalm to David, but when we look at Psalm 2, there's no superscript that, that actually attributes it to him. Now, this psalm, Psalm 2, was partially fulfilled by David, but we're going to see that it's complete or ultimate fulfillment is only found in Christ. This psalm is awaiting the second Samuel 7 son. That's a lot of S's. The second Samuel 7 son. That's, that's where you see the Davidic covenant and the promise. Uh, all these things related to David's lineage. The promised king of David who will rule completely and ultimately and comprehensively. Now, this psalm is a, is a prophecy pointing forward to Jesus. And we see that the whole world, the whole world is lined up against God, and yet Jesus will conquer nations 
and people. So the psalm can be broken down into four subsections. You could actually see it in the stanzas. And we're going to see the rebellion of the nations, the response of God, the rule of the Son, and the refuge in the King. We're going to see the rebellion of the nations, the response of God, the rule of the Son, and the refuge in the King. So the first three verses, the rebellion of the nations. I could have called this subsection, haters gonna hate, but that didn't start with an R and the other point started with an R and so I didn't want to do that. But haters gonna hate, the rebellion of the nations. Verse 1, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Why do the nations rage? That word rage, it presents this tumultuous sea, this raging sea. But rather than being a sea, it's this tumultuous meeting among nations planning a rebellion. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? That word plot is the same word as meditate that we saw in Psalm 1, verse 2, where it said, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So we continue this contrast between the righteous and the wicked. The righteous, well, they meditate. The word meditate means to to murmur, to talk to oneself under your breath. The righteous murmur, meditate on God's Word, on God's law, on God's ways. Well, this presents the wicked. They're not meditating. They're not murmuring about God's Word, God's ways. They're murmuring about rebellion. That's what the wicked, that's what the peoples, that's what the nations are doing. Now, this uprising, it's not limited to any specific country or continent. I mean, all the nations, all the peoples are in this together, and it's not just nations and peoples, it's kings and rulers. Verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together. We see kings, rulers, peoples, nations, all are a part of this rebellion. Upper class, lower class, people and them, their leaders, they, they set themselves, they, they take a stand, they dig their heels in against who? Against the Lord and His anointed. So, so this is comprehensive. Okay, you could go to the jungles in the Amazon, find the most remote people you can find, they're a part of this rebellion, or you can go to any crowded subway in the world. They're all a part of this rebellion against the Lord and His anointed. That word anointed, Hebrew, that's the word Messiah. Greek, that's the word Christ. It's against the Lord and His anointed. And uh, this rebellion, because it's, it's so comprehensive, it's so large, it's all nations, all people, kings, rulers, all time, going up against the Lord and His anointed, it's very clear in the onset that the complete fulfillment, I mentioned this is a prophecy pointing forward to Christ, I mean, it's, it's well beyond already David and Solomon, just appointed two of the, the greater kings in Jewish history. But there's only one king 
in all of human history that this can apply to, and that's Jesus Christ. So, Psalm 2, right in the beginning, describes the rebellion of the human heart against God. And as humanity is rebelling against God and His anointed, so to reject His anointed, the Son, is to reject God, this is what the people's nations, kings, rulers are saying. Verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. They want their bonds broken. They want to cast away their cords, bonds. They they want the chains broken. They want to break the ropes that they perceive as holding them down or, or tying them down. One word to summarize all this, freedom is their cry. Freedom. The perception is that God's word, God's law, God's boundaries, God's parameters, they don't see that as designed to enhance human well-being. They don't see that as designed for, for those of us who are made in the image of God for our flourishing. They don't view it as tracks designed by God to, to lead to our goodness, flourishing, well-being. Rather, they perceive it as ropes that are tying them down, chains that are holding them back, parameters that God has laid out related to to marriage, law, society as a whole, sexuality, parameters that are designed for our our flourishing, our well-being. But the rebellious people look at that and they say, no, we don't want that. We don't want you to tell us what to do. We don't want you to explain to us, even though you're our creator, of how we'll flourish. I want to be the captain of my own soul. I want to determine how I will flourish. I want to set my own course. So we say, let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast away their cords from us. And as long as sin dominates and Satan reigns on earth until the day that Christ returns, this will be the cry of humanity in rebellion against God. They look at God's easy yoke designed for our good, and they say, no. We view that as restricting and constraining us. We want to chart our own path. We saw, I mean, look at what he says in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot, those last two words, in vain? What does vain mean? It means that rebellion won't work. It's not going to succeed. I mean, those who chafe against God and scream freedom against God, all of that is in vain. 
And as they, they work to uh, apparently try to gain their own freedom, it only leads to enslavement to sin, enslavement to the enemy, not liberation, but destruction and ruin. We see this continuation, but the, the ways of the Lord lead to joy, freedom, true freedom, happiness, flourishing. We saw last week in Psalm 1, verse 3, where it talks about the one who delights in the law of the Lord, meditates on His law day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. But, but those who trust in Christ, who submit to God's rule and reign, who find delight and meditate on God's words, God's ways, that leads to fruit, that leads to durability, that leads to prosperity, where the rebellion against God, it's, it's vanity, it's futile, it ends in destruction and perishing. Haters are going to hate. Rebellion of the nations. But what is the response of God then to this rebellion? Is God up in heaven, wringing His hands saying, oh no, the people are unhappy. There's a lot of them. They're angry. There's a lot, large mob out there. Do I need to hide away? Do I need to change course? Do I need to pivot? We see God's response in verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. This is the only place in the Bible where God laughs. It's an anthropomorphism. It's attributing a human characteristic to God. So when humanity shakes their fist at God in rebellion, God's response is, is laughter. And his response is laughter because the uprising, it doesn't threaten him in the least. It's as big of a threat to him as three ants on my kitchen floor are to me. There's no plotting. There's no planning. There's no scheming. I don't need to make some phone calls and figure out what to do. I can handle that in an instant. No threat whatsoever. So the raging of the nations to God, it's, it's laughable. Now, this is important for us to see. I mean, we, this perspective, we have such a high view of ourselves. We have such an exalted sense of humanity. And it's so easy for us to have a very low view of God. If you would, turn to Isaiah chapter 40 in verse 12. You'll see it on the screens as well. But this is a series of rhetorical questions that Isaiah asks uh, to help see the power, majesty, greatness of the Lord, of God. In verse 12, Isaiah 40 verse 12, he says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? And marked off the heavens with a span. A span is the distance when your hand spread out between your thumb and your little finger. 
Who has marked off the heavens with a span? Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance. Summer may feel like a, a long time ago. I mean, technically, it's still summer. It was like 80 degrees yesterday. If you went to the football game last night, it felt pretty humid in there. But if you think back just a few weeks, I mean, a, a lot of people went on family vacations. A lot of people went to the beach. And by beach, I mean like ocean, not a lake. Like you went to the beach, at family vacations there. And just imagine, you know, just a few weeks ago, you're there, you're looking at the Atlantic Ocean, sitting in a comfortable chair. And you get to talking to another family member, and you think, let's drain that ocean. Well, let's just get rid of all the water. And you know how I'm going to do that? I'm going to go, and I'm just going to take my hand, and I'm going to scoop out some water. And that's how I'm going to do it. So you go to the edge of the ocean, and you scoop it out in the hollow of your hand. Now, you know this is ridiculous. I mean, do, do the, the ocean levels drop at all when we do that? No. Of course not. I'll even give you two hands and a bucket not going to make an impact whatsoever. But the Lord, it says, He can measure the oceans. He can drain the oceans in the hollow of His hand. Or let's say you're looking out in a clear night, you see the stars, and you think, let's try to measure these. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to measure these in a span. I'm going to take my hand and spread it out really wide, and I'm going to try to measure it that way. We can't do it, but the Lord can and He does. This is just to, to highlight how silly it is when we have this out of line, exalted sense of ourselves. We have such exalted view of ourselves and such little ideas of God. Verse 13 of Isaiah 40. Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? If you're not catching on yet, the answer is no one. No one teaches God anything. He knows all. He's infinitely wise. He's infinitely just. We can't teach him anything. Verse 15 Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, He takes up the coastlands like fine dust. And we don't often use scales too much anymore in our society. The only place I can really think on a regular basis that we use scales is at the the deli counter at Wegmans. So imagine you go there, you know, you're getting your lunch meat for the week, you're getting some brown sugar ham, you're getting a half pound of oven roasted turkey off the bone, and you're getting all of that. And so the person behind the counter starts measuring it, and all of a sudden you notice on that scale a speck of dust. You say, hold up, excuse me, there's a speck of dust on the scale, you're about to overcharge me. I mean, they would look at you like you had three heads, like you were crazy and out of your mind, and they should. Because the speck of dust is not affecting the price whatsoever. It is inconsequential. That's how the Lord views the nations. They're accounted as dust on the scales. And this is why God laughs, going back to Psalm 2, verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs at this rebellion. His laughter is intended to humiliate his enemies. 
Now, God is not laughing because he thinks this rebellion is some kind of silly joke. This isn't him making light of sin or little of sin. I mean, he he takes sin seriously. In our disobedience, we, we spit and trample on his glory. We drag his name through the mud. We ruin his world. We harm men, women, and children who are made in his image. We war against the Son. But part of God's triumph is actually holding up his enemies in public disgrace. And he did this through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Colossians chapter 2 says that through that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So part of God's mocking laughter, that's part of his judgment on his enemies. So we see God laugh and then we're going to see him speak and act. Verse 5 says, then he will speak to them in his wrath. He'll terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So he laughs and then he speaks. He says he's going to speak to them in his wrath. He's going to terrify them in his fury. That's part of his judgment. And, And then he says, as for me, for me. I will set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, it's interesting, just the development of this, the first two stanzas of this psalm. I mean, you see the the rebellion of the nations, people plotting and setting themselves, and then they say, I mean, their words in verse 3 is, let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. That's their words, their uh, verbal contribution to this. God's words are seen in verse 6, just a few verses later. It's building up to what God's verbal response is to it. What he says to all of that raging and fury and trying to establish their own freedom, he says, as for me, this is what I'm going to do. I will set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, there's going to be plenty of time throughout this series to talk about the importance of Zion. In brief, uh, this is where in the Old Testament God dwells on earth. Zion, it's the city of David. It's Jerusalem. Now, we know that God sits in the highest heavens, but it's where His, his feet, his, his presence is met in the Old Testament. It's where the king reigns. It's where the temple stands. And we see that the promises of Zion, once again, are ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Zion is where people go to meet God. Now, Christ is where we go to meet God. So God's response is, I'm going to establish my king. Rebellion of the nations, response of God, and now we're going to see the rule of the Son. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. We see a few things here about the Son. We see Christ's identity, verse 7. We see His destiny, verse 8. And we see His authority, verse 9. Verse 7, He says, it's the Son 
initially saying, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, and then you have the Lord's words, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now this is quoted in Mark chapter 1, we recently went through a series in Mark at Jesus' baptism, see it again in Mark chapter 9 at the transfiguration, Uh, in Hebrews chapter 1, Jesus is called the heir of all things. And so you have this connection between uh, the son and king. I mentioned 2 Samuel 7, and in 2 Samuel 7 verse 14, you see God saying, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And the king aspect of this is vitally important. Well, once the Israelites had a king, um, so as the king went, so the people. They had a righteous king, the people would flourish. They had an unrighteous king, uh, there would be heartache and pain and difficulty for the entire nation. Why? Because the king was the people's representative. So here we see the son will be the people's representative in the truest sense of the word. As one commentator said, uh, this idea of the king and Jesus being our representative, I mean, this is at the heart, the heart of our salvation. He says that Jesus embodies us in Himself. He represents us in Himself so completely that His obedience is now counted as our obedience. His death is counted as our death. His resurrection, our resurrection. His unending life, our life. We are saved because Jesus, the Son, the King, is our representative. It's Jesus' identity. And then we're going to see His destiny. Verse 8, ask of me, the Lord says, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Essentially, Christ will rule the planet. That's what he's saying. Uh, I mentioned that that this psalm is intended to be a a message of hope and encouragement for Christians. Uh, You look around, just think of the notifications, the news notifications you get on your phone, the headlines. And it'd be appropriate to to ask, what is the future of America? And then it'd be appropriate to respond, only God knows. Say, well, what's the future of this world? It'd be appropriate to say, only God knows. That would be true. Only God does know, but He's chosen to reveal aspects of that. And it's very clear in verse 8. What is the future for America? Christ will rule the ends of the earth. Future of the world? Christ will reign. Every nation will be His heritage. And then in verse 9 it says, uh, it like jumps to the second coming, and it says, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Uh, If I hadn't read a few, it's probably four or five weeks ago, I actually read, had everyone turned to Revelation 19. Not going to do that again. But this is like a Revelation 19 picture of Jesus here. He's coming And he's coming to break them with a rod of iron. And he's coming to judge. And he has the authority to essentially like spare no punches, use whatever force necessary to shut down this rebellion. 
You can use whatever force necessary. Rebellion of the nations, response of God, rule of the Son. And then we continue this theme of hope for Christians, refuge in the King. Verse 10, now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Psalmist is saying, isn't it obvious? If you just apply some logic to this, there's only one logical conclusion. There's only one wise response. There's only one appropriate way to heed this warning. Kings, rulers, nations, peoples. And what is that response? Verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. To serve the Lord with fear. When you hear fear, don't, don't think like North Korean totalitarian regime here. Uh, fear is the beginning of wisdom. Like we've already seen the Son, the righteous King, this great King, what He can accomplish. We saw how God perceives the threat of the rebellion. And so we recognize that with trembling and with fear how powerful, how majestic, how righteous, how holy, how wonderful, how glorious this King is. And so we respond by serving Him, and we respond by rejoicing. Why do we rejoice? You go back to verse 1, the blessings that come to those who are counted as righteous, to those who delight in the Lord and the Word of God and the ways of God. A continuation then of this wise response. Verse 12, kiss the Son. That's to pay homage to the Son. That's to bend the knee before the Son. Now, we know every knee will eventually bow, but will we do that willingly, joyfully, gladly? Or will we be those who experiences righteous wrath and judgment? It says, kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way. Psalm 1.6 said, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Psalm 2.12 says, You want to kiss the Son because you don't want to make the Son angry, and you don't want to perish in the way. You don't want to perish in the way of the wicked. That word perish, it means like obliteration. It's judgment. Then he adds another line. For his wrath is quickly kindled. You could say, well, I thought God was slow to anger, bounding in steadfast love, compassionate, merciful. Oh, He is. He's demonstrated that thousands and thousands of years, 2,000 years since the cross and resurrection of Christ. But when Christ returns, it will feel sudden. And this puts a measure of urgency on our response as to whether we're going to submit 
to this righteous king because it's wise to do that, whether we'll kiss the sun or whether we'll continue our futile and foolish rebellion, our chafing against God. And then it ends with a blessing, just like Psalm 1 started, with a blessing. Blessed is the man, Psalm 1, 1. Psalm 2, 12. Blessed are all, all who take refuge in Him. The response to this psalm today, take refuge in the Son. Find blessing in the great King. Find covering in the righteous man, God, Jesus. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. I think we have to ask ourselves, do you have a limited view of Jesus? Do you, when you think of Jesus, when His name's uttered, when you're reading His Word, when you're worshiping Him, when you're telling others about Him, is this the Jesus you have in mind? The ruling, reigning, righteous, judging with a rod of iron, good, holy King? Secondly, what is your attitude? To God's will, God's ways, God's law. Do we, do we chafe against His Word, His parameters on, as I mentioned earlier, marriage, law, society as a whole, sexuality, everything in between? Do we not like it? Does it feel restraining to us, constricting? This is an important question that we should ask ourselves regularly. What is our attitude? What is our heart towards God's law, His statutes, His rule. May we be a people who love righteousness, see it for our flourishing, our benefit, our good. And may we be a people who hate wickedness. And lastly, as we see this world doing what it's always done, it may seem like the world is, like there's a, there's a greater acuteness of evil and wickedness and rebellion. Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. What we know is that the world, kings, nations, peoples, rulers, they've always been in rebellion against the Lord and His anointed. And so may we take heart, may we take strength, resting, that, that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, that He is ruling, that He was reigning, and that He will one day return, and He will rule completely and righteously and gloriously, entirely in its completed form. And for those of us who are in Him, we will also rule and reign alongside Him. Today 
is the day of salvation. If you haven't, turn to the Son. Hear the urgency. Don't presume upon God's grace and do not presume that you'll have tomorrow or years or months from now to deal with this. There's an urgency here. And for those of us who are in Christ, may we worship, yes, through song, but with our lives, our great King, as we serve Him and rejoice in what He's accomplished and His rule and His reign. Let's rejoice in this righteous King. Let's pray together. Father, we praise You. We rejoice that You have established Your Son and Your King that the nations are His heritage, that the ends of the earth are His possession. And we rejoice in this promise. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. We love you. And it's in Christ's name that we pray together. Amen.